This morning's lesson is Matthew 21, The Triumphal Entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind And the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. This is the word of the Lord. Just a word of prayer as we begin. So may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. One of the things that seems quite obvious about these very familiar verses, uh, Palm Sunday readings, is that Jesus 
seemed very intentional about what he was doing in preparing for his arrival into Jerusalem. He seems to have planned it and deliberately seems to be wanting to make some point about this beginning of this last week of his life. But actually, that would make sense, wouldn't it? We've, we've been watching with interest, haven't we, as we've seen Kate and William in New Zealand and all the work of preparation that has gone into receiving them, or perhaps more particularly baby George, who seems to be very much a focus of attention. Um, for example, when they were in, in, in Marlborough in Blenheim, um, which I thought was up the road, but anyway, there's one in New Zealand as well, the fountain was cleaned out, the pavement was washed, and gardens were pruned. It was the same back in 1953, of course, when the Queen visited New Zealand. Apparently, people dyed their sheep red, white, and blue, just in case the royal train might go past. And the bowling clubs manicured their grass into an E-shaped um, for Queen Elizabeth uh, as she went past. So there's always lots of excitement when royalty comes into town. And you do just get that sense of anticipation and excitement as Jesus turns up in Jerusalem. There's a great sense of expectation that finally the Messiah, the King, the Christ has come to his capital city. This has been building momentum, in fact, in Matthew's Gospel and all the Gospels. For example, in chapter 16, Jesus asks the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Peter, in a moment of divinely inspired insight, says, but we reckon that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now as he comes into Jerusalem, there's just a sense in which the narrative gives us this uh, awareness that people are beginning to realize that the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, has arrived in his capital city. And actually, there are three little hints, it seems to be, in this passage that help us see something of the identity of Jesus as the Christ Messiah. And they're they're shown, actually, in those words, king, prophet, and priest, each of which are hinted at in Matthew 21. So first, note that the king, and that's the dominant theme, of course, comes to the capital city. And as Jesus arrives uh, uh, near Jerusalem, prepares to go from Bethany into the city the crowd give him an impromptu welcome. They acclaim him in the actions. They cut down palm branches, they put garments on the road, and he gets what we might call the red carpet treatment. The road is lined and carpeted, ready for King Jesus to come into Jerusalem. But also they acclaim him in words as well, don't they? Words we're familiar with. Hosanna, meaning save or save us. And particularly important for Matthew's gospel is this phrase, son of David, Um, right back in chapter 1, where you have these long genealogies. Jesus is um, described as the son of David. Here at last is the king of David's line. And in fact, you hear it repeated again on the lips of children, the temple here in the second part of the reading this morning. Son of David, here at last is a king like David, greater even than David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And through both their actions and their words, they do things that you'd never do for any other human king. 
an expectation that at last the Christ is here in Jerusalem. But actually, it's not only the actions of the crowd that reveal that, but also Jesus' own actions, his preparation in advance of his arrival into Jerusalem. The king has come to his capital city, but he has done so with his own agenda. He prepares to use the cult and mother in advance, and just the little code, the Lord needs them, was enough of a signal for the owner to release them to the disciples. The message he seems to want to send out here is not one of um, pomp and fanfare and all the regal trappings normally associated with a king arriving. There are some subtle messages that he sends. He arrives on a donkey, not on a horse. He's not a warmonger, but actually a bringer of peace. He comes in humility. And maybe there's actual further hints here of something of his ultimate mission. The beast of burn, you've seen pictures in, in, in Africa and elsewhere where, where, where donkeys are still very much used for transporting stuff, laden heavily, doing the grunt work in carrying uh, stuff from the market back home. And maybe there's just a picture here of what Jesus will do on Good Friday, the, the burden bearer, the one who in fact will bear burdens for us. But one of the more subtle things that are going on, and we'll see this in in just a moment, is that I think Jesus is wanting us to realize that there will actually no longer be a holy place or even a holy land because access to God will be through this humble king. That is the way into God's presence. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Notice the second aspect of this messiahship or kingship of Jesus, which is just mentioned in passing, but that's related to the term prophet. He is the prophet who comes from Nazareth. When the Magi came looking for Jesus back in chapter 2, we're told all Jerusalem was troubled. And now in verse 10 of chapter 21, it's a similar word. Jerusalem is stirred. It's a word that gives the connotation of seismic activity. The land is trembling with the presence of this prophet from Nazareth. Jesus provokes a strong reaction. Before too very long in the same city, Jesus will be tried and executed. But now the crowds query, who is this? The great prophet that we hope for, the one who was promised in Deuteronomy 18, here finally is the prophet who comes to his temple. And then thirdly, notice this other little theme going through, which is Jesus in his priestly role. Jesus the priest comes to his temple, and the words that are quoted are taken from Matthew chapter 3, where you have this picture of the king suddenly coming to his temple. You can hear Handel's Messiah singing it, can't you? To purge and to purify. And Jesus is seen displaying this angry outburst which in some respects seems so out of place, doesn't it, for the Jesus who we know in the rest of the gospel. What is it that incites such a strong reaction from Jesus? Well, I think it's fairly obvious, actually, when you look at the section from verse um, 12 and onwards of chapter 21. Because as he comes to his temple, he finds that actually the worship is corrupt. And the people who suffer most from corruption at the heart of the worship of Israel are the Gentiles. Gentiles who are supposed not to be driven away, but rather to be welcomed in. 
And that's what's going on in the outer courts here, where Jesus turns over the table of the money cha- uh, changes and, and, uh, and drives them out. Because his plan is to disrupt this cottage industry that's going on outside of the temple. This is the place where Gentiles should be able to buy a pigeon for sacrifice. Uh, If they're not wealthy enough to sacrifice anything else, this should be cheap and easy for them to do. Or or to change money um, so that they don't use the Roman coinage to put in the offertory plate, but rather have temple coins. But, But rather they were getting this at an exorbitant exchange rate. And it was just a racket that was going on. And uh, this caused Jesus to be incensed with anger. Now, before we're too hard on them, it's just worth pausing for a moment and thinking, if King Jesus came to our corporate worship centers in our land, I wonder what he would do. Sometimes you go into our cathedrals and you hear the ring of the tills and the bustle and the activity and you wonder whether Jesus would get out whips and and drive out the people who are selling all of the trinkets from our temples. But before we uh, sit too comfortably with condemning other people, I wonder what he'd say about some of our evangelical churches. How easy it is for us to exist only for our own sake. Yes, we want to be fed. Yes, we want to come to be built up to meet with other believers. But actually, are we a place of prayer? A place that does good to the people? A place where the non-Christian is welcomed in to worship the true God? Or are we so preoccupied with the trappings of our worship that actually we forget that we're on a mission to win the world for Christ? It was Archbishop William Temple who famously said, didn't he, The church is the only organization which exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not yet members. And we would do well to remember that. And Jesus might have words to say to you and to me about how mission-focused we are in our worship. Now, having understood something about Jesus' identity as the Christ, the, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the big surprise, of course, is what this king will do. Because, of course, Jerusalem, and particularly the temple, were hallowed important places for the people of Israel. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus will will pray for Jerusalem. And he will talk about how he would long to gather the children together as a a hen gathers together her chicks. But actually, they wouldn't let it. And ultimately, when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it is in judgment. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And similarly, when the Lord suddenly comes to his temple, the temple itself will be destroyed. Jesus promises that not one stone will be standing on another. Perhaps because, as he says in John chapter 4 to the woman of Samaria, true worship is not located in Jerusalem or Samaria or Gerizim. True worship is in spirit and in truth. Geography is not the issue, but the state of the heart. But we do need to hear the tremendous shock, the shockwaves, the stirring that would have gone on when they saw what Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. In the War of the Jews, Josephus's uh, book about the history of uh, the Jewish people, he records that after a couple of years of hostile attack on Jerusalem, 
In AD 70, the Roman commander Titus ordered the battering rams to be used for a final assault on the temple. Once the walls of the city were breached by an army of about 30,000 men, they entered Jerusalem systematically slaughtering an estimated 600,000 Jewish people who were gathered for the Passover. And the remainder were actually taken off to be sport at the gladiatorial games. The assault lasted 143 days. The Jewish nation, as a self-ruling people, had been annihilated. And Josephus records that the Romans torched the city and temple fires were still burning a month later. And so intense was the heat that the gold in the temple melted. In the pillaging of the temple, which followed, these stones were broken up to get at the gold. Not one stone was left on another. And this destruction of Jerusalem, the desecration of the temple, happened just as Jesus foretold 40 years earlier. God judged his people for failing to recognize his King Messiah and for failing to worship God truly. We well, might think it's a rather negative message to dwell on, dwell on on this day of great praise. And we do want to join in the praise of the pilgrims as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But I hope you've noticed that actually Jesus is not overly swayed by the impulse of the crowd. He's not overly impressed by the celebrity status he has afforded. Because he goes on a mission with a purpose, sending out a message about the kind of king he will be who rides on a donkey, and going to a temple that he will now purge and ultimately will destroy. There's no longer a holy city and no longer a holy place. The Christian converts eventually would realize the full import of what Jesus did. The worship of God is to be in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Wherever people believe and are baptized in the name of Jesus, there were to be found the people of God. And even so, down to today, we are to be a holy people, a royal priesthood, as Peter puts it. We're to worship the Messiah Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, and join in the praise, Hosanna, He is worthy of our worship, and it's good that we meet here to do it. We're to make a house that will be full of prayer and God's power at work. But perhaps more importantly, a house that will make it easy for outsiders to find and worship God. But there are subtle warnings in this passage as well, though, aren't they? God will judge fruitless and faithless churches, rather like the fig tree and the incident that follows. The light may yet go out on Western churches, as churches in China and in Africa grow and flourish. When I was in Africa um, two weeks ago, my constant comment to people was, please pray for us, And please send back some of your godly ministers to remind us of the gospel that we brought to you a hundred or so years ago. Better, of course, is to heed God's warning. Worship, prayer, and mission. Those are the marks of a living church 
a house where God dwells. And where you find those things, worship, prayer, and mission, God truly is among his people and is glorified in our midst. Well, let's pray that that may be true. Please join me as we pray. Lord, these are very joyful words, and we want to join in those pilgrims as they um, spontaneously acclaimed you and gave you your due. But also, Lord, there's strong undercurrents in this passage as well as we realize that Jesus was preparing for climactic week of his life, going to his temple and to his city where he'd be rejected and crucified, but ultimately raised again to fulfill your great purposes for your people. We praise you, Lord, that, that Jesus set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem so that we might gather even today as your people in worship and prayer and in praise. In Jesus' name, amen.